This morning is bittersweet as we finish the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. I think some of you may, as we look at these uh, verses, might wonder, are we really going to preach them this morning? Isn't Peter just saying, it's been great? Well, we're going to uh, uh, see that all of God's word is beneficial and profitable for us as we look at Peter's closing remarks in 1 Peter 5, verses 12 through 14. It's been a lot of fun uh, going in our care groups, uh, going through uh, 1 Peter. So I don't know if you've been enjoying that. Um, uh, I was blessed to, 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 to hear of one of the saints who said that they had been learning 1 Peter 5 more because we've been going over it in our care groups, and so hopefully that has been your experience, and I look forward to uh, continuing next. For those of you who don't know, it's going to be a surprise, in Second Peter. Now, next week, our, our, our brother Sam is, is going to be preaching, but then we're going to start Second Peter the week following. Second Peter 1 is a fantastic portion of Scripture. I mean, all of it is because it's inspired by God. Uh, but Second Peter 1 is just a thrilling chapter, and we will spend many weeks in it. It is rich and really one of my most used passages as I um, am thinking about growing I'm thinking about what happens when people don't grow, and it is a great book. So as we finish up 1 Peter, some of you may want to linger in it and spend more time kind of reading through it, and I would encourage that, even spend some time as we see uh, today that there's a great phrase talking about um, this, this letter is God's grace. And maybe you want to read through it again and take and take some notes about what you've learned. But also, you could get ready in the upcoming weeks for Second Peter as well. I'm going to read to you from First Peter five. Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll start at verse six, but we're going to focus on verses twelve through fourteen this morning. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for your word that you've preserved for us. Uh, we thank you, Father, for uh, your, your wisdom in uh, retaining and inspiring uh, not just the meaty core of, of, of these letters, Lord, but also the greetings and, and the salutations at the end, Lord. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, give us wisdom as we look at your word, that we would see what challenges you have for us what instruction you have, how you would like us to be conformed into the image of your Son, 
that we would learn to be righteous and holy and to enjoy this peace that we have with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would be transforming us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I mentioned when we started, we could choose to gloss over 1 Peter 5, 12, 12 through 14. Some people ask, well, are you going to cover that? And yes, we are. In this short section, God's apostle Peter gives, gives two commands here. And one of his prayers is recorded. But even if those weren't there, we still hold with conviction what God says about his word. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And because we are confident this morning that God has good works for us, because we want to be equipped for those good works, because we want to be reproved where reproved is needed, and we want to be taught and corrected and to be trained in righteousness, we're going to look at these verses, which are also inspired by God through his prophet. This morning, we're going to draw six uh, uh, six. In, six implications from Peter's closing of his letter to the sojourning saints of Asia Minor so that we will continue to glorify him as strangers awaiting for his return. So we're going to look at six implications from Peter's closing so that we will continue to glorify him as strangers awaiting his return. Six implications, excuse me, from Peter's closing so that we'll continue to glorify him as strangers awaiting his return. And we saw that in this book that Peter was writing to the saints of Asia Minor, and he describes them in the beginning of the book as those who are elect exiles or scattered strangers, those who are not at home in this world, those who were going through suffering for their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, those who were being, being slandered, those who were being mocked for belonging to Christ but those who are chosen by God. So we're going to look and draw implications. So the first is recognize the grace of God. Recognize the grace of God. Recognize the grace of God. In 1 Peter 5, verse 12, Peter writes, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. It's not saying that some other people might regard him in a different way. He's just putting his apostolic authority behind saying that my opinion matters, that I'm God's messenger, and this Savannah is a faithful brother. I have written to, to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, likely, this, this Silvanus mention is the same man, also called Silas, who accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. We, we, we first saw Silas in Acts 15, verses 22 and 23, which is, in, is interesting, doing a very similar job there. It says that he was sent to bring the decision from, from, from the Jerusalem council back to, to Antioch. And it describes, it describes Silas as a leading man among the, 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 among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. And so this letter from the from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, was sent by Silas uh, to, to, to Antioch. Acts 15.32 describes that Silas, he, he was being a prophet, encouraged and strengthened the, the, the brethren with a lengthy message. That he brought the letter, but then he also instructed them, them, them based upon what the Jerusalem Council had decided. 
the decision there was, was that someone did not need to be circumcised to become part of the body of Christ. Well, Acts 15 continues to tell about Silas, that, that Paul had chosen Silas and, and left on his missionary journey. And we're going to come to that later, where Paul had previously had gone with Barnabas and taken Mark, but that there was a, a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas whether Mark should indeed be taken. And so Paul chose instead Silas, and it is most likely this same Silas. Silas served with Paul, planting churches in Philippi and, 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 and Berea and Corinth. Silas was there right with Paul in Acts 16.25. Well, he was one of those who, who, who was arrested in Philippi, who was praying and singing hymns to, to praise to God when God uh, 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 sent the earthquake and the Philippian jailer was saved. It is likely that same Silas, or as is called here, says Silvanus. Now, many have taught that because it says through, through Silvanus, that it was through him that Peter wrote this letter. But there's really no good reasons in the Greek to think that it was really Silvanus who wrote this letter at, 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 at Peter's instruction. Although some study Bibles have that and, and, and some people have taught that. Really, it is most likely that when it says it is through Silvanus, it is referring to this letter being carried by by, by Silvanus as he goes through uh, Asia Minor. We don't know if he made the whole journey himself, if he went to each one of those churches, if he passed uh, 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 on the letter to, some, to someone else. But it was through Silvanus that this letter uh, went through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Peter commends Silvanus as a faithful brother. Silvanus was affirmed by Peter as someone who's dependable and trustworthy. He was more than a, a letter carrier. He would be able to answer any questions that people had as they read through the letter of 1 Peter. And some have wondered if maybe even uh, Savannah was the one who actually read the letter. He had spent time with Peter, and could he capture uh, the, the, the way that Peter would have, would have wanted the, 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 the letter to be communicated? But Peter's commendation here of Savannah, uh, of Savannah, was more than a pleasantry. This letter... This letter that the elders of the churches in Asia Minor had in their hand, this letter was from God. It was written by God's apostle. It was carried to them from a man who has testified as a faithful brother. And so the circle of authenticity is close here. It's as close as it could be. From God to his apostle Peter to a faithful messenger. And that's still by God's grace, the model that we follow in our churches from God to an apostle who wrote it down and then entrusted it to faithful men. And that's why our character is important as we communicate God's word. It's true as well that the faithful parent, uh, that, 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 that anyone who's communicating God's word ought to be faithful. Parents ought to be faithful as well because the character of the, of the communicator is important. Peter says that through Savannah, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, he, he gives a seal of approval on, on Savannah. I've written, I've written to you briefly. Now, Peter really isn't referring to the length of the letter there. The author of the much longer Hebrews also says, for I've written to you briefly, which is a long letter. I think the idea there is that Peter could have said much more about the grace of God. If he had had more time, he could have said much more. 
but he's written briefly about doctrines that are, that are profound and life-changing. And then Peter summarizes his purpose in writing. He says, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And he describes his purpose in two ways there, both as exhorting and as testifying. Exhorting means to, to, to urge strongly the appropriate re- re- response. And it has a range of meanings that sometimes in Scripture, that, that word exhorting is translated as encourage. And sometimes it means more like it is translated here, to, to, to exhort or, or to appeal. It's to present truth and to call people to the right response based on what is said. And so Peter says that as he's written this letter, he has been exhorting. And you've been exhorted as well to respond, up, to respond appropriately. In times, that is to be encouraged. And in times, it is to obey. I just went through the first chapter, and we could go through the whole book. And what had Peter been exhorting them to do? In fact, if you would like to read through 1 Peter again in the upcoming weeks, you could go through the whole book and write down what was Peter exhorting the audience to do, because that is your responsibility now, right? It is your responsibility to follow with the exhortations of this book. And in the first chapter, in verse 1, verse 13, he says, to prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what he says in the first chapter. Verse 14, don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Verse 15, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Verse 22 of chapter 1, fervently love one another from the heart. And that's just the exhortations from the first chapter. That is our responsibility as we leave First Peter. We're not supposed to just go and not be changed. We're going to, uh, hopefully we've been changed by this, but we're going to want to go back as this is a book that you understand now. You may not be able to answer every question you have about it, but that you know what those, what those exhortations mean. Peter wanted this to be incorporated into their lives, for them to truly, fervently love one another. Now, that's just the first chapter. The book also talks uh, 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 about relationships of submission to the government in, inside marriage, in working environments, or there it was masters and slaves. It, the book talks about responding to suffering, about the requirements of holiness, about relationships with, with, within the body, about using our gifts within the body, about being humble toward one another. Those are just some of the, the exhortations in the book. So Peter reminds us that that is what he's been doing. I've written to you briefly, exhorting. And then he says, and testifying that this is the true grace of God. To testify means to bear witness to, 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 to attest to. I've been declaring what, what some of our versions have. This is the true grace of God. And the pronoun this most likely refers back to everything which Peter's written. It's both the truth of, of the letter, but also the commands of the letter. This whole book, this is the true grace of God. It's the indicatives and the imperatives. It's God's actions and our responses. All of this, this, this life here, everything that's described, this whole bundle, these, these commands and these truths, this is the true grace of God. Everything that God reveals to his redeemed and everything that God requires from his redeemed is an act of God's grace. 
right? God's commands are not burdensome. So this book, and we can relish some of the great truths, and we're going to look at them. I mean, the the first chapter itself is mind-blowing. It is full of God's grace, and we quickly see that, but the commands are part of God's grace too. A good God gives his commands to his creatures. Commands are not bad, they're a blessing. Read Psalm 119 through, and you'll see how that psalmist loved God's commands. They were a delight to him. They were better than honey. They were better than money. The same grace which requires, which reveals a testimony to be believed also requires an exhortation to be obeyed, and that is God's grace, that he has intervened in our lives, exalting himself, exalting his son, so that we can be redeemed, redeemed, so we can be reconciled to himself, and then he gives us his command so that we can walk pleasing to him. All of that is grace. And Peter says that this is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. It's real grace. It's not imaginary. It's genuine. It's not fabricated. It's the true grace of God. This is grace. And that brings us to our first point. I'm just going to say that. We must recognize the true grace of God. This, this letter of 1 Peter, this is the true grace of God. This is God's gracious revelation to us. God has spoken. God's prophet Peter has written. He's exhorted us to obey. He's testified so that we may believe. 1 Peter includes the genuine grace of God. God's grace in the original manuscripts is 100% pure. It is without pollution, without mistakes of any kind. It is the true grace of God is how we are reconciled to him and how we then afterwards can please him. We can't say about any other uh, claim of truth that is 100% the grace of God. Someone's feelings are not, we can't say this is the true grace of God. Someone's experiences, someone's vision, someone's dreams, someone's what they, someone's what they heard God say to them. This is not the true grace of God. God's word is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. So will you believe God's gracious testimony? Will you submit to his glorious exhortations for our lives? Will you recognize that God's word, that including this letter, but all of it, that this is the true grace of God? Because that's what Peter wanted you to do when he says, this is the true grace of God. But he doesn't want you only to recognize it. He also wants you to stand firm in it. And that's our second point. We need to recognize the grace of God. We need to stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm in the grace of God. And again, we're still in verse 12. Having recognized that this letter indeed contains God's grace, the saints must stand, stand firm in this grace. Now, we who are saved stand in grace. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul describes that those who've been justified by faith, who have been declared righteous because of their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about that peace. It is an unbreakable peace where we are forever under Christ's lordship, through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith, and here's this phrase, into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. We know where that grace is going to take us. 
Our roots are deep in the rich soil of grace. Our foundation is sunk in the bedrock of grace. And there's a way, if you are in Christ Jesus, you can never get outside of this grace. Right? If, if you have been made right with God, you will forever be in grace. Those who've been reconciled don't become unreconciled. Those who've been justified don't become guilty. But yet Peter knows that and he says, stand in this, stand firm in this grace. Stand in it. And the Apostle Paul, we could go to Ephesians 6, verses 13 to 17, where he tells them, and we looked at this verse briefly last time, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Paul is concerned that they continue. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And we stand firm by having our minds saturated with God's truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness by living according to God's standards is a way that we stand firm in the faith. Having your feet, uh, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our minds saturated with the good news of reconciliation with God taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil. And in Paul in verse 17, and taking and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That helmet of salvation is the reality that God has saved us. And that is how we stand firm in the faith, by looking at what God has done for us, that, he has, that Christ has taken our punishment in our place and that we have been made right with God through faith in him. So we stand firm by living as if this spiritual reality is actual reality. It is true. Those who are in Christ Jesus have salvation. They have, their feet are steadfast with this gospel of peace. They have truth. But we stand firm by having that spiritual reality become our day-to-day reality. Not just to leave that in God's word, not to leave that on Sunday morning, not to leave that in our Bible time, but to become ever increasingly the realm in which we live. And that's really what Peter's talking about here, about standing firm in this grace. And so, uh, uh, although this grace refers to the, to the, to the, uh, to the commands he's given, as well as the instruction, I mean, as well as to the uh, truth claims he's given. I've already gone through some of the, the exhortations from the first chapter. And so now I just want to kind of briefly from the first chapter, look at those evidences of grace. And really we could do, we could go through chapters two through five as well. And again, that would be a great exercise to go through and say, where is God's grace here? Well, I'm going to do that with the first chapter. So as we stand firm in this grace, as we continue, what are we to stand firm in? And I don't have verses here. These are just from the first chapter. Stand firm in the grace of being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. That's how we stand firm. We stand firm in the grace of being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. 
That's how we stand firm, in the grace of being born again to a living hope. We stand firm in the grace that our faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We stand firm in the grace of obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. All of these are just launching from the first chapter. We stand firm in the grace of receiving what the prophets prophesied and what angels long to see. We stand firm in the grace which will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We stand firm in the grace of being rescued from former lusts and called to be holy. We stand firm in the grace of being redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. We stand firm in the grace that Christ has appeared for our sake through whom we are believers in God. We stand firm in the grace of having our souls purified for the purpose of sincere love. We stand firm in the grace of being born again through the living and abiding word of God. All of that is just the grace from the first chapter. If you are going to stand firm in the upcoming week, that truth needs to become the realm in which you are comfortable. That needs to become the lenses which you see this week. The lenses through which you look, it is, that is the grace in which we stand. If we only look at our circumstances, we will not stand in that grace. We stand in grace through humility. And this is why Peter says this after the previous verses. We stand in grace through humbly heeding the, the exhortations of this letter. Through humbly believing the testimonies of this letter. We stand in grace by humbly waiting for his return. By humbly expecting his rewards. By humbly waiting on the exaltation he promises. By humbly obeying the commands he's given. By humbly craving his word as he commands. Humbly loving his people. Humbly casting our cares upon him. Humbly recognizing how undeserved this grace is. And that's how we stand in this grace. By humbly and dependently refusing to leave this grace. To refuse to wander as close to the fence as possible. And to look over to see if the grace is greener, the grass is greener. To refuse to not daydream about an easier way. To not fantasize about a path that has a little less picking up your cross and following. A path with a, with, without so much self-denial. To refuse to forget the one who loved us and gave himself for us. That is how we stand in grace, by humbly clinging to our Savior. Brothers and sisters, again, this is the true grace of God. There is no other. We must stand firm in it. We, we must encourage one another to stand firm in it. So be guarded for one another. Be attentive when your brothers and sisters stop attending on Sunday morning. When they start withdrawing, when, when, when they're no longer be open about how their hearts are doing. When they're not spending time in God's word. Plead with them. Stand firm in this grace. We don't just say, oh, you know, he got saved years ago. He's going to be fine. The means of grace, God uses you to bring his word into people's lives so that they stand firm in grace. That's what Peter wanted. These saints, these, these ancient saints scattered across modern-day Turkey to recognize this is the true grace of God. The whole thing, not just the great promises, but the commands too. And to stand firm in the grace of God through obedience and through believing 
Then he also wants them to celebrate the progress of God's kingdom. And that's our third point. Celebrate the progress of God's kingdom. We see this in the beginning of verse 13. And Peter doesn't give a specific command there, but that's still what his heart wants. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And all of a sudden, we're like, okay, this is getting a little weird here, right? And if you're reading through this, like, okay, who's this she? And where's Babylon? What's going on here? So let's look at those questions. So where is, ba- where is Babylon? It's almost certainly not ancient Babylon, which was mostly ruins by, 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 by now. But Babylon in the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, Babylon epitomized the godless, idolatrous, power-hungry, and pleasure-driven worldview. It, it epitomized a world without God, a world of false gods. And, 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 and that language of the prophets is continued into the book of, of, of Revelation. Revelation 17, verse 5 and 6. Babylon the Great, it says, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witness of Jesus. And there, and with both of these references to, 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 to Babylon, almost all agree that it's referring to Rome, which, had, which was then the center of the world. So the place that Babylon had uh, 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 when, 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 when Jerusalem was destroyed in in the seventh century, and the and and the Israelites exiled, the place that Babylon had in the world then is the place that Rome, the center of the Roman Empire, had in the world then. It too had a similar uh, position of importance as a center of commerce, as a center of power, as a center of emperor worship, as a center of idolatry. Now, during the exile. When, 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 as punishment for their sin, Israel was forced to leave the promised land, they lived in Babylon. But now in the first century, God's people in Babylon, it's a metaphor here for Rome. God's people are not only scattered across the Roman Empire, but we're also in its very center, the heart of the Roman Empire, in Rome itself, the Babylon of the first century world. So who is this she who is in Babylon who's sending greetings? And this she is most likely a reference to the church in Rome. In fact, the, the, uh, 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 in early manuscripts, they were so aware of this fact that they wanted to make it clear that, that, that some early manuscripts changed the word Babylon to Rome and changed the word she to a church because they know people reading this might not understand, uh, understand what it meant. So instead of just just trans, just instead of just copying it as they really should have, they kind of tweaked it and did a study Bible note and said, you know, no one's going to get she 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 who's in Babylon. Really, let's just change change it to the church in Rome. The Apostle John also referred to to to, to, to churches as as she's in Second John verse one. It says the elder to the chosen lady and, and her children. So the elder of a church sends. Greetings. In 2 John verse 13, the children of your chosen sister greet you. The church that I am at sends you greetings. So it was a way of referring to churches by feminine pronouns. So this is, and Peter's just saying, the church in Rome is sending you greetings. The church in Rome is sending you greetings. Peter had begun his letter in 1 Peter 1 verse 1 to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and, and, and Bithynia who are chosen. 
or your ESV Bibles have, to the elect exiles, to the, to the chosen strangers, to the chosen pilgrims, to the chosen exiles. And now Peter concludes really with the same idea. Babylon was a place where Israel was exiled in the Old Testament. So just like Asia Minor had, was a place of, of, of exile in a sense, God's people are not in their true home. Well, God's people weren't there in their true home in Rome either. That they were exiles in Babylon. Just like the, your exiles, as Peter's writing to them, in Asia Minor were here exiles in Babylon. And he calls them elect exiles. And here he says, chosen together with you. He's saying, you're elect exiles in Asia Minor. We are the elect exiles in Italy. And they're sending you greetings. And so why should we celebrate the progress of God's kingdom? And that's, I think, what, what, what Peter is giving them a little window into. The saints in a, of Asia Minor could be comforted knowing that there were saints in Rome. God's purpose in election continued. The gospel was continuing to spread from the backwaters of the Roman Empire, Turkey. I don't know, we could, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't know, like Idaho or Montana, to Los Angeles, you know, in the whole spread. God's kingdom is advancing, and it will continue to exceed at God's pace. Victory would not belong to Nero. Nero soon was going to, to begin an intense persecution of the church. Roman emperors just followed with even worse persecutions than Nero, but they could not stop the success of God's kingdom. So we, too, should be celebrating the progress of God's kingdom. That God's kingdom is advancing in Malaysia. It is advancing in the Czech Republic. It is advancing in Northern Africa. It is advancing in Idaho. God's kingdom is advancing. And that's what Peter wants them just to remember. Here at the darkest place in the world, the center of the persecution that is going to follow, God has his chosen people. No force no power, no person, no litigation can stop the progress of God's choice and of God's calling. God's kingdom is going to advance. So we need to celebrate the progress of God's kingdom, put our hope in that. So we need to recognize the grace of God. We need to stand firm in the grace. We need to celebrate the progress of God's kingdom. And I know it wasn't a specific command there, but he wanted them to be encouraged by that. He didn't have to say that. And then four, we need to develop relationships in God's family. We need to develop relationships in God's family. And again, this is not a command that Peter gives. It's just the overflow of his heart. As he says in 1 Peter 5, verse 13, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Well, who is this, my son Mark? And it's likely that the biblical references about Mark really are referring to the same person. Mark is first mentioned in Acts 12, 12. It was to John Mark's mother's house that Peter goes after his, his, his miraculous escape from, from prison while he was waiting on death row. It was to John Mark's house. And John and John Mark, so John, also known as Mark, was probably you know, a, a young teen at that time. A few years later, it was Mark who accompanied his cousin Barnabas and Paul to, to Antioch in, in, in southern Asia Minor. And from there, John Mark joined with them on 
that missionary journey. When the going got rough, though, Mark deserted the missionary team of Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 13, 13, it says that John left them and returned to, to Jerusalem. He may have lit, lit, literally gone back crying to his mother. In Acts 15, 37, when Paul and Barnabas want to return to the churches they had planted, in Acts 15, verses 37, it says that Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in, in, in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, the same Silas that Peter had just mentioned, which is interesting. Uh, Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to, to the grace of the Lord. So this is probably that same Mark. Mark who had become a point of contention between Paul and Barnabas. Paul's relationship with Mark didn't end there, though. Later, from, from, from Rome himself, probably just a year or two before Peter's writing this letter, the Apostle Paul speaks of Mark as that, Bar that Barnabas' cousin, Mark, sends greetings. And a few years after 1 Peter is, is written, Paul says of Mark in 2 Timothy 4.11, Pick up Mark and bring him with you, Timothy, for he's, of useful, he, he's useful to me for service. So there's this great story of Mark in Scripture from, from some kind of, of, of young teen to someone who went on a missionary journey, someone who abandoned the missionaries that he went with, but in God's grace is found useful to the same missionaries later that he left. Well, now Peter has known Mark at this point for, for 20 years. And, and when it says, Mark, my son, it doesn't mean that he's his, his, his biological son. The term shows Peter's affection for Mark. Perhaps it's possible Peter had been, Mark had been saved under Peter's ministry. Perhaps Mark had been discipled by Peter as one of the young teens in that church. Church history tells us that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark while in Rome. And because we see insights that Peter had, it is likely that John Mark incorporated Peter's firsthand testimony of what the Lord Jesus had said and did. So as Peter's writing this, he's saying, my son Mark sends greetings, but they probably had a side project going. Mark is in the process of writing down a gospel according to Peter, which is just thrilling to, to, to think about. Here, 20 years later, Peter getting to, to 60, Mark now 40, and maybe they're looking ahead and Peter realizes, I don't have too much longer. I've got to get this stuff written down. Well, one of the things that Peter told Mark, perhaps, is in Mark 10, verses 28 to 30. Peter began to say to him, so Peter began to say to Jesus, and you can imagine Peter telling Mark what he said to Jesus. Behold, we've left everything and followed you. You can imagine Mark hearing those words after the fact and saying, wow, Peter really did leave everything and follow Jesus. I've left everything and followed him too now. 
But then again in Mark 10, verse 29, Jesus said in response to Peter saying this, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. Yeah, you're giving up a lot to follow me, but you're not giving up anything. Is what Jesus said to Peter. And now Peter is telling that to Mark. And how interesting, he's telling this to a Mark who, who kind of shirked away from being a missionary because it was too hard. And now is serving right alongside Peter. And as we heard Paul say, oh, you got to bring back Mark because he's useful to me. Peter had gained a spiritual son in Mark. Peter had gained a faithful brother in Silas. What Jesus had promised in Mark 10, 28 to 30 is true. He had gained spiritual children. He had gained spiritual brothers and sisters. We shouldn't imagine that Peter is making a strong point here. He's not instructing anyone. So I want to be careful to not make too much of it. But it's also included for us for a reason. See, Peter's familial affection just overflows my son Mark, Silas, my faithful brother. God continues to give family to those who are in Christ. God continues to give family to those who are in Christ. To whom are you a faithful brother or a faithful sister? Whose spiritual son or daughter are you? To whom are you becoming a spiritual father or spiritual mother? This is part of the gospel blessing. And Jesus says, yes, in eternity you get eternal life. But now, yes, you're going to have to give up a lot. You're going to, some of you are going to give up your fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Some of you here have, as your family has wanted nothing to do with you after you became a Christian. But Jesus promises in this life, I'll give you many brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. Just a little of the sweetness here, as Peter says, so does my son Mark. So we need to develop relationships in God's family. It's great to ask, who is your son and daughter? Are you cultivating them? Who's your spiritual father or mother? Who's your faithful brothers and sisters? I think it'll be encouraging to you. Fifth point is to express love to God's people. Express love to God's people. In the beginning of verse 14, it says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And this is a command that Peter gives. In fact, it's interesting, this is the last command of this book. We should take it seriously. Greet one another with a holy kiss was what Paul often said to both of them. And perhaps it's easy to discard something that's so culturally different. The command to greet one another with a kiss was to more than to say hi. One, one, one commentator gives some, some background on this custom, which seems really strange to us, right? It, he says, in the ancient world, kisses were normally exchanged among, among, fam among family members, parents and children, brothers and sisters, servants and, and masters. This affectionate kissing was normally on the cheeks, the forehead, the, the hands. Now, both Peter and Paul go make the effort to, to, to distance us from any kind of a sexual kiss. 
where Paul says it's a holy kiss. Peter says it's a kiss of love and not a eros love, but an agape love. This kiss, one commentator writes, is a demonstration of inclusion, of kinship, and honor. Inclusion, kinship, and honor. And so how do we apply this? Love must be expressed. Another commentator writes, although we may dismiss this as simply a custom belonging to first century culture, we would do well to recognize the benefits in interpersonal relationships which come from such close physical expressions of friendship and fellowship in Christ. It's much harder to get mad at someone you've just hugged or kissed. It's much easier to feel accepted in a fellowship which has given such a warm welcome. The theologian Hodge says, The spirit of the command is that Christians should express their mutual love in the way sanctified by the age and, and community in which they live. I understand that a holy kiss here would be very odd. But warm physical affection is appropriate. At the very least, meaningful handshakes. Hugs even. Notice, introverts don't get a pass here. To greet one another with a holy kiss is to physically demonstrate the love that, 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 that Peter has already been, been requiring. 1 Peter 1.22, fervently love one another from the heart. 1 Peter 4.8, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Remember, brothers and sisters, that what you have together is more important than your differences. And imagine the scene in these early churches in Asia Minor. As there's different ethnicities, as there's Jews and Gentiles giving each other these these holy kisses. There's, There's ethnicities that have histories of being in war against one another. There's slaves and slave owners in the same church giving each other, treating each other like brothers. There's lawbreakers and prison guards. There's there's saints and there's those who had been persecuting them. Can you imagine the first time Paul got welcomed into a church and they greeted him with with his holy kiss? Like what affirmation that would have been. What love. And this is what we need to be giving to one another. Maybe not specifically a holy kiss. We should probably talk about that before we start that. Um, but the same kind of devotion to one another. We're not talking about tolerating one another. We're talking about going out of our way to express warmth for someone, that the affection of belonging in a spiritual family. It includes pushing beyond what is comfortable, pushing beyond what is natural. And that becomes increasingly so in a world where we are increasingly desocialized. It includes repairing relationships and overlooking offenses. It's not just chatting with those who have the same interests. It's not just talking about the Rams or talking about board games or homeschooling. It's continually entering into new relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that it can be as deep as the relationship you have in your care group, although it may turn out to be. But, but, but it's, it's, it's being like, oh, You were bought with the blood of Christ. I got to get to know you too. It's us getting to know our teens and the teens getting to know us. It 
It's seeking to be increasingly inclusive in demonstrating affection, right? It's, it's to expand. It's to look around and say, you know, who haven't I given a holy kiss to recently? You know, I don't even know that brother. I've been going to church here for three years. I don't even really know them. Let me go ask how, how God's been working in grace in their life. It's going to someone expecting to hear a new story of God's grace. So be warm towards one another. Be affectionate towards one another. Be inclusive. Be intentional. Be eager. Come looking to plant a metaphorical kiss on someone. Really. That's how we obey this command. Greet one another with a kiss of love. We're here for a purpose. Now six, we need to savor peace with God and his people. Savor I was trying to get a good word. We need to savor the peace we have with God and his people. 1 Peter 5, verse 14, he ends, Peace be to you all who are in Christ. And this is a closing prayer here. It's what God wants for the audiences he was writing to, churches that, as far as we know, he didn't ever personally go to. It's the same thing he would say to us, same prayer he would pray for us. Peace be with you all. In, in the ancient world, peace was more than a feeling. It was more than, you know, a nice beach sunset. It's more than just calm. Peace was, was all of life. It was, it was life flourishing. It was, it was well-being. It was well-being that could only occur when there wasn't hostility ongoing. When there's war, you don't have this kind of peace. It's, as one commentary writes, it's the prosperity of the whole man. Now, for the Jews, they were waiting for the Messiah who would bring them this, the messianic blessing, the flourishing of life that would occur in a righteous world that was under Jesus' reign. And for God's people now, the foundation of peace is always reconciliation with God. If you've been reconciled to God, you, are, you have this peace in Christ. You have peace. You have this peace. You have peace with God. Peace becomes our new norm. Our, our, our lives are repaired. We're not in a perfect world yet. The world has not been remade. We're not yet in the eternal age but we live under Christ's reign. We are submitted to the king of peace and we are believing through the gospel of peace. And since we've been justified by faith in Christ alone, putting all of our hope in him to take our punishment, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this peace that we enjoy with God, really this peace which we have, which allows us to flourish, in which we can have the fruit of the spirit in our lives, which, which we can enjoy loving God and obeying him, brings us in peace with one another. It's not just a vertical piece, it's a horizontal piece. Ephesians 2, 14, 15 talks about how God, through Christ, establishes peace with one another. Our lives here are about learning to live under Christ's reign of peace. Now, we know that the world is still cursed by sin. We know that much of the world is hostile to God, but we're still living under Christ's reign. So we have the ability to flourish. Like 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May the God of peace, you're reconciled to him and you can, you can be holy. 
Or Philippians 4, 7, may the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. You know, you've, you've gotten into something amazingly good. You've been reconciled to God. You are right with God. May that peace of God guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You have something that's stable, something that can be savored. You have been reconciled to God. You have peace with God if you are in Christ Jesus. That's why Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Be thankful that the peace that we have with God rules our hearts with one another, but rules in our individual hearts too. So when we pray for, for, for peace with those who are in Christ Jesus, we pray that the spiritual reality of God's favor in Christ would overwhelm their day. So as I pray for Christ's peace to be in you, for you to peace be to you who are in Christ. What I'm praying is that your understanding of God's favor and God's grace to you in Christ Jesus would overwhelm your day. It's a peace through which a lens that we see both the present and the future. It's the peace that allowed this same Peter to sleep the night before Herod was going to kill him. It's the peace which allowed Paul and this same Silas to sing while in jail in Philippi. It's not the peace of circumstances. It's not a peace of just resigning ourselves. Well, I guess God's going to do what he wants to do. It's the peace of knowing that we've been reconciled to the creator. We've been reconciled to the faithful judge, our father, who will bring us to unfettered eternal blessing because he has chosen us in Christ to be in Christ. And this is the peace that we have. And so when we pray, and this is a great thing for us to pray for one another. When I pray for my, for my brother, for my sister, that they, that your peace would be to them. That, 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 that they would see their life through this wonderful relationship that they have with you. That that would be what they're looking at their hardships through. That that's what they would be looking through their sufferings through that Christ, the King of peace, has made peace with them and is waiting for eternal peace with him. So have you been savoring that peace of Christ in your life? Have you, have you been relishing that? Have you been enjoying that? That is what Peter would close this letter praying with, and that's what we'll close our letter praying with. Uh, Father, there's uh, so, so many insights into a world which is under the authority of your Son here. Lord, we see the, the privilege of peace with you. We see the, the sweetness of relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. We see the progress of of your kingdom, the advance of your kingdom. We see this call to, 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 to stand firm in grace, to continue in it. And so much of, of really the end of this letter, your messenger is calling us to, to live out what we know is true, to savor what we know is true, to enjoy what we know is true. And so, Father, as we've been, 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 been blessed for you to preserve this word for us. I pray, Lord, that we would act in an appropriate way, that we would enjoy the peace we have with you, that we would be intent on expressing our love to your people, 
that we would develop relationships within your family, that we would be cultivating sons and daughters and enjoying fellowship and life with brothers and sisters. Lord, that we would rejoice that your kingdom is advancing in the most persecuted countries in the world even now. And Lord, by your grace, that we would recognize that this word has your grace and help us to stand in it. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work through this letter in our lives for many years to come. In Jesus' name, amen.